Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, for many U.S. citizens, the 4th of July is really just a chance to barbecue with friends and family. But for U.S. news media, it's also a chance to say or imply that there really is something to celebrate about the unique place of the United States in the world, the special democratic project that this country is supposedly engaged in. And that's where the message gets complicated. Because while media give airtime and column inches to where you can find the best holiday sales and celebrations, fewer will use the occasion to direct attention to the danger that the Democratic project is facing. The energetic efforts to silence the voices of anyone who has something critical to say about this country, its practices and policies, or its history. Celebrate, don't interrogate, is the takeaway from a press corps that wants to tell you how to protect your dog from fireworks, but not how to protect yourself and your society from well-funded, well-entrenched campaigns to stop people from voting or speaking or going into the street to protest things that are wrong. We'll talk about that with Vera Eidelman, staff attorney with the ACLU's Speech, Privacy, and Technology Project. Also on the show, as the West Coast deals with a historic heat wave and drought, Some city officials are banning 4th of July fireworks to help prevent wildfires. If that's some folks' first indication that climate disruption will actually disrupt their lives, well, media need to take some of the blame for that. A recent Washington Post piece on the unprecedented punishing heat in the Pacific Northwest stressed how readers would be wrong to be shocked. Everybody saw this coming. There have been 40 years of warnings. It had a breaker reading chickens coming home to roost, and it used the phrase human caused. It's just that the words fossil fuels appear nowhere in the piece. So climate disruption is a horrible thing that's happening, and we're all to blame for not acknowledging it soon enough. But who's to blame for doing it? Well, that's unclear. Just know that you should be worried and upset. A CBS News piece did say, quote, this is only the beginning of the heating expected if humanity continues burning fossil fuels, close quote. And it ended with Michael Mann calling for rapidly decarbonizing our civilization. And that stripe of coverage is fine as far as it goes. But how far does it go? Where is the reporting that frankly identifies fossil fuels as the problem, rather than how long a shower I take or what light bulbs I use, and incorporates that knowledge into all of the coverage of Enbridge 3 and other pipelines, of extreme weather events, of how, as CNBC had it recently, it's not too late to buy oil and gas stocks. Why won't media move past narrating the nightmare of climate disruption to using their powerful platforms to actually address it? We'll talk about that with Vivek Shandas. He focuses on the particular implications of climate change on cities and on different people within cities as a professor at Portland State University. 
That's coming up, and we're going right to it. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the National Media Watch Group FAIR. As U.S. citizens celebrate the 4th of July, many will be thinking about the best way to grill a vegan hot dog, but many will also be thinking about what the freedoms we tell ourselves define this country and its project actually mean in 2021. If you think the answers are to be found in history, you might be missing the point. The U.S. is engaged in radical to the root debate right now about what democracy means, what civil liberties mean, and what kind of society we want to live in. We're in history right now. This is what it looks like. So what are the front burner issues in terms of free speech, rights of assembly, the right to protest, to disrupt business as usual, which we know is central to making actual change. Our next guest thinks about these questions every day. Vera Eidelman is staff attorney with the ACLU's Speech, Privacy, and Technology Project. She joins us now by phone. Welcome to Counterspin, Vera Eidelman. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I wanted to talk first about BL versus Mahanoy Area School District I know that many listeners haven't heard anything about this case, but it really gets at when do you lose your right to free speech or free expression? Can you talk a little bit about what was at stake in that case and your response to the court's ruling? Absolutely. So Mahanoy Area School District versus BL was the most important case about young people's free speech rights in the last 50 or so years. The issue at stake in that case was a school's authority to discipline a student for what they said or expressed outside of school hours, off of school property, that was not harassing or threatening in any way. Our client in that case, BL, was, when the case began, a 14-year-old who had tried out for the varsity cheerleading team at her public school. She unfortunately didn't make it onto varsity and was very upset. And she took to Snapchat on a weekend at a local convenience store with her friend, not wearing anything that reflected the school, not mentioning the school or anyone at the school by name, instead typing F school, F softball, F cheer, F everything on top of a photograph of her and her friend raising their middle fingers. They did not say F, they used the actual word just Mm -hmm. for clarity. And the school suspended her from the cheerleading squad for the entire year. And the ACLU of Pennsylvania took up her case arguing that the school could not discipline her under the diminished rules that attach to student speech rights inside of the school environment, given that she was out of school speaking her mind on the weekend online. And the Supreme Court ultimately agreed with us, holding that the school cannot apply the same diminished rule that attaches inside of school, outside of school, because otherwise students would be carrying the schoolhouse on their back 24 hours a day, seven days a week, unable to ever fully explore their views, unable to fully express themselves for fear of always worrying that they might 
be deemed, quote unquote, disruptive, which is the standard that typically applies in schools. And the court also recognized that the school itself actually has an interest in enabling students to engage in dissenting and unpopular speech, recognizing, of course, that what that means in any particular school district will vary by the reality of that school district, because the school really is, in the words of Justice Breyer, a nursery for democracy. And one of the goals of the school should be to teach kids what it means to have free speech rights. And as a parent with an activist child, I hear that word disruptive, and it just (laughs) sets something off because obviously that is a contextual term, as you've just described, but that sounds a little worrisome just on its face at the level of language to make that the standard. Absolutely. That was the main thing that we were very worried about in this case, that the school might win in arguing that it can apply that very subjective viewpoint-based standard outside of the school. Well, so, okay, schools are nurseries to help kids develop their voice and to learn that they are allowed to use their voice and in terms of using it meaningfully in terms of changing things. So then those young people become adults, you know, and they want to go out in the street to use their voice. So now we're at my second question, which is this spate, not new but increasing, of anti-protest legislation. Can you just talk about the the range of laws that we're seeing spring up and what they are doing or trying to do? Yes. Unfortunately, we have, as you mentioned, seen the continuation and deepening of the anti-democratic, anti-protest legislative trend around the country. For at least the last five years now, we have seen legislators respond to vocal, powerful, full-throated advocacy, not by listening to what their constituents are saying, but instead by seeking to create new laws that would silence them. So examples of the types of laws range from increasing penalties on laws that already make something criminal. So, for example, laws that already criminalize trespass or refusal to disperse or failure to obey an officer. All of those things are already illegal, and these laws would seek to increase the penalties that attach. In some cases, the bills seek to increase the penalties, not just in terms of criminal time, which, of course, is incredibly impactful, but also in terms of restricting people's access to public employment, to public office, and even to public benefits. Things like access to scholarships for school, food stamps, and the like. In addition, some of these laws seek to really punish not unlawful conduct, but association. The fact that people are in the same place at the same time. A number of the bills that have been proposed, including some even that have passed, for example, in Florida, are incredibly ambiguous as to whether they punish an individual who has themselves engaged in violence or property destruction, for example, or every other person around when that occurs, regardless of whether they were involved, regardless of what they themselves think of that conduct. So we're really seeing a lot of bills and even a few bills that have become law that seek to 
criminalize association, criminalize the fact of gathering together to make our voices heard. I think if I could pick out one thing, the idea of laws that say it's okay to hit protesters with your car. You know, I just think that even for folks who, you know, may have complicated feelings, that's just mind-blowing. What's going on with that? I completely agree, and I think it's particularly mind-blowing given that these aren't just hypotheticals. We know that Heather Hare died in Charlottesville as a result of someone hitting her with his car. We've also seen many other protesters injured at protests by cars. And so I think it is a particularly perverse legislative trend that we are seeing and a clear message that it sends to people who are thinking of joining with others and going out onto the streets is you better think twice because you might get hit by a car. And if you are, you might have no recourse. Exactly. Exactly. Well, let me ask you finally about media, because I often have noticed that, you know, broadly speaking, corporate media love people speaking up, you know, until they're an organized group and they're speaking up in the street and then somehow they move from being individuals with a voice to interested activists and it's somehow different. You know, it's like protest is great, but keep it quiet, you know. Um, And I see like NPR, which has done all kinds of favorable coverage, but Then I see this headline, wave of anti-protest bills, and anti-protest is in quotes, like maybe it's not true, wave of anti-protest bills could threaten First Amendment. Well, could and threaten, now we're at two degrees of separation. And I just... I just wonder if media are bringing home the threat that's happening here. So that's just me, but I would like to ask you, what would you like to see more of maybe from reporters or maybe less of in terms of coverage of this legislation, coverage of the protests and coverage of the real fight that we're in right now? That's an interesting question. I do think that one thing to keep in mind is that this really is an anti-democratic trend. Right. I think there are ways in which it will not be surprising to see who these laws get applied against. But at the same time, at their core, they are taking aim at, you know, where you started, one of our fundamental American rights, the right to protest. And that applies regardless of the message that is being expressed. And I think it's important to keep in mind that this is legislation that will impact people regardless of what they're expressing, simply because they are seeking to do what is so deeply American, to join together and speak out together and be in the same place with other people who they want to associate with. And I think that that is the thing that legislators should really be shamed for doing, the idea that they are trying to stop people from exercising one of their fundamental rights. We've been speaking with Vera Eidelman. She's staff attorney with the ACLU's Speech, Privacy, and Technology Project. They are online at ACLU.org. Vera Eidelman, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you very much for having me. If the event is a condominium collapse in Florida a wildfire in California, a record-breaking heat wave in the Pacific Northwest, the story is climate change. 
and how poorly prepared we are societally to address it, which makes it borderline surreal to read reports like that in the June 29th New York Times that describes oppressive heat in the Pacific Northwest as buckling streets and driving up emergency room visits, but takes care to tell readers early on that, quote, Tying a single heat wave to climate change requires extensive attribution analysis, close quote. The group Media Matters notes that over the past weekend, broadcast and cable TV networks ran 35 segments on heat in the Pacific Northwest, only eight of which mentioned climate. It isn't that individual reports lie. It's the failure of corporate media as a whole to take climate disruption as a given, a devastating given, and then to devote commensurate energy to actual plans to address it now, which means decentering the voices of politicians and interested power players in favor of those doing the work to mitigate the harms climate change is already inflicting and to lead us forcefully away from the cliff. Every event is an opportunity for changing that conversation in a useful way. We're joined now by Vivek Chandas. He focuses on the implications of climate change on cities as a professor at Portland State University. He joins us now by phone from Portland. Welcome to Counterspin, Vivek Chandas. Thank you. Wonderful to be here. Well, coverage and conversation about climate change often talks about the planet or what's going to happen to all of us. But we know that the impacts of climate disruption are not distributed equally or equitably. I know that you do work about who suffers most when we have extreme weather events like the current heat wave in the Pacific Northwest. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. Often what we're hearing about the climate change is this global phenomenon. And so I want to just start with that idea in that we have now going back to the 1950s. In fact, there were oil company scientists who were convinced in the 1950s that the emission of these massive amounts of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases would lead to a potential forcing of and destabilizing of the climate system as a whole. And that's now over you know, half a century established science that's been growing over time. And we had some real interest in this kind of global phenomenon. And so where the conversation is increasingly going and where we're trying to move this is to get it down into much more of an everyday experience of something that communities need to be far more prepared for and far more safeguarded from. And that takes place at our local neighborhoods, at our streets, in our cities as a whole. And so the conversation is starting to move in that direction. And while we're talking about the kind of increasing precision of the science that's emerging, we're also starting to see at this very localized level the pernicious effects of what happens when a climate and a planetary system does become dysfunctional from what we've known it from millennia in the past. And so Part of what we're seeing now is this ability to describe in incredible detail how an individual street, how a city block, how a neighborhood really feels some of these most acute effects of, for example, a heat wave that's just come through my city of Portland, Oregon, and who are the people who are most affected by these heat waves. 
And we've been able to chalk this up to a variety of different factors, namely factors that related to race-based planning and segregation efforts that took place almost a century ago that are coming home to roost today. And that's what we're starting to see these disproportionate impacts around. Well, let's talk a little bit in detail about that, because I, I understand that you've been able to find actual temperature variations between neighborhoods, yeah? Right. So generally when we talk about the weather we see on the news or in newspapers or radio, we hear about, you know, the high that's going to befall a city or region. And sometimes we get a little bit of variation across cities within a metro region. So what that essentially does is it creates this kind of one temperature for an entire city. And what that also suggests is that Mother Nature is throwing this thing at us, and we really have no agency. We have nothing we can do about it. Though when we get into these specific measurements and descriptions of differences by neighborhood, we're then able to see that the actions where we've taken in past planning and design can be directly attributable to the experiences that communities and infrastructure and ecosystems have at the local level. And so when we start seeing those differences, what that suddenly suggests is that we have some agency, we have some control over what our everyday experience is like when it comes to these heat waves, flooding events, various forms of climate-induced impacts as they fall upon our cities as a whole. So what we've been able to find is that cities vary by upwards of 15, sometimes 20 degrees Fahrenheit. In fact, the heat wave that came through the Pacific Northwest During the heat wave, I was really lucky and fortunate to have some very sensitive temperature and humidity measurements that I was able to go out and collect around the region and found that while the news media was saying, you know, it was 115 on Sunday, I was able to go out and actually clock neighborhoods at about 124 Fahrenheit with these sensitive thermometers. I even went by a few houseless encampments that were along a busy street, and I was able to use a little infrared camera to take photos of various tents that were set up. And I could see silhouettes inside the tent, so I knew there were people inside. And I noticed that these tents were coming in at about 135 Fahrenheit. Wow. And that's lethal when you're talking about communities that are completely exposed to this kind of heat coming through and very limited preparation or outreach that I noticed was happening in and around the region. Right. And so you're talking about things like, hey, if you're in an affluent neighborhood, you probably have more trees. And that is a material difference in terms of how you're going to experience a heat wave. Yes. Trees are often the first go-to because they are incredibly efficient in their ability to draw water up from the deep soil, transpire out their leaves, change the humidity around the local environment, provide that shade. All of these things help cool that local environment. And yes, wealthier communities have been designed to have more trees because of a variety of racial covenants and redlining policies that were promulgated 80 to 100 years ago that still maintain their fingerprint or their kind of echo today. And so what we're seeing is that these trees directly do help, though what we're also seeing is that the amount of space for being able to get trees into the ground 
is much larger in wealthier, often whiter neighborhoods, meaning racially whiter neighborhoods of cities, whereas lower income communities of color, often black, Latino, indigenous communities living in cities, due to historic segregation policies, are living in places that have far less space for trees, let alone all the other potential factors that lead to the amplification of heat waves. Well, we know that public policy relies on public opinion, and opinion relies on experience. So there's a real relationship between thinking, well, you know, that heat wave was bad, but it wasn't so bad for me. Or, you know, well, I don't live on a coastline, or whatever, you know. And also people have things on their mind. They may have lost their job. Their kid might be sick. How do we work on engaging people in a incredible problem that might still be abstract for them based on this just differential impact? It's interesting, specifically in the Pacific Northwest, where a lot of the houses don't, even middle-income, higher-income homes, don't have a history of having air conditioning. And so what's particularly uh, noticeable for me in this particular event of a 115-plus degree heat wave coming through is that there were a number of people who often don't step up and show up for those uh, conversations about inequity actually coming up and saying, hey, this is really hot. We are not well prepared. And I was hearing a lot of that over the last few days in the Pacific Northwest. Um, Though to get to your point more directly, I think the idea of public opinion of folks who may not be necessarily directly engaged with the conversation, one of the most important Parts of this is for us showing evidence about what is it that's happening in and around a region. We have been very ambitious in going out and engaging communities that are often at the front line of the heat waves, those who are working outside, working through community-based organizations, to go out and collect evidence around what are we seeing. Often this is the invisible side of things. We don't see the differential effects because we are not directly experiencing it. Though I am able to show you that your block, which is just a couple of blocks away from another neighborhood, is actually 15 degrees cooler in terms of temperature than just a neighbor, a walk's distance away. And so when I can start, when, when I or we can start describing these differences in what the experience is, we can start to really have conversations about why those patterns exist, what may have led to them, and ultimately engaging in those conversations could lead to actions that would allow communities to then Um, change public opinion about where we prioritize resources, how we center historically marginalized communities in reducing the impacts of heat waves, which, as we know, kill more people than all other natural disasters. And so that's something that we really kind of ground ourselves in is this evidence and descriptions of what is happening just outside of our houses, just within our neighborhoods and across our whole city. We've been speaking with Vivek Shandas, professor at Portland State University. Vivek Shandas, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Sure, my pleasure. Thanks for your interest in this topic. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the national media watch group based in New York. The show is engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin.